Hi guys, welcome back to Vox Tablet, the weekly podcast of Tablet Magazine. I'm Julie Subrin. Today, it's time for Purim Spiels. Purim, which starts tomorrow night, requires several things of us. It requires that we exchange treats, which for most of us has come to mean eating lots of hamantaschen. It requires that we give to charity, that we drink and be merry, and last but not least, that we get together for a raucous reading of the Book of Esther. That last tradition, the reading of the Megillah, has led to all sorts of Purim-related storytelling events, or Purim spiels. And it inspired us to do some Purim spieling of our own, albeit in a very loosely defined fashion. We invited four people who write funny stories for a living to participate. Josh Gondelman, Emily Heller, Rob Kuttner, and Judy Battalion. Our guest host, Rebecca Sofer, gave these guys a few Purim-related themes to choose from, and then we set them loose. Here are their stories with introductions from Rebecca. All right, for those of you who need a quick refresher, the story of Purim goes like this. It's the 4th century BCE. Esther, a beautiful Jewish woman, is chosen to marry the king of Persia. Meanwhile, Haman, the king's evil, evil advisor, has hatched a plot to murder all the Jews in the kingdom. From within the palace, Esther and her cousin Mordechai cleverly foil the plan. Haman ends up going to the gallows himself, and thousands of other enemies of the Jews are murdered as well. In commemoration of those events, one of the Talmud's more fun commandments, as Julie mentioned, is basically to get plastered on Purim. In fact, it says we're supposed to drink until we can't tell the difference between Mordechai, the good guy, and Haman, the bad guy. That idea of being in such a state that you can't tell the good from the bad was one of the themes we offered our storytellers. And it brings us to our first story from Josh Gondelman. I grew up in the suburbs of Boston, which is a weird place. There's marriage equality, which is wonderful, but gay people can't march in the St. Patrick's Day Parade, which is a terrible thing to do to the group of people who perfected the parade. A parade without gay people at this point is just traffic plus spectators. My parents were protective first, and Jewish second. When all my friends were traveling on birthright trips to Israel, my folks wouldn't even entertain the idea. The concept of Aliyah wasn't nearly as important to them as keeping their son thousands of miles away from the turmoil in the Middle East. When I was 24, though, my friend Sean and I drove cross-country. On the way back east, from Seattle to Boston, we ignored the advice my parents had always given me, and we forgot to check the weather report. Midway through Montana, we found ourselves stuck in a huge blizzard, as police officers literally waved us off the highway into a town called Deer Lodge, which sounds like what you'd call a town in Montana if you were trying to make fun of it. We stopped at a diner for coffee and tried to regroup. A couple of phone calls let us know that all the motels in the town were booked solid. We figured we were about 10 hours away from dying asleep in my car. We were in our mid-twenties, and that was our best plan, to die asleep in a car. A couple in the booth next to us heard us mulling over a predicament. We're staying in the motel across the way, offered Scott, the male half of the duo. Come crash on our floor. Sean and I made the kind of meaningful eye contact that signified these people were probably going to murder us in the night. But at least against these two, we'd have a chance. We couldn't exactly fight back against hypothermia. They left to buy booze across the street and offered to pick some up for us. We told them we were all set. We wanted to be sober if push came to shove. 
The thing people forget about depending on the kindness of strangers is that you're also at the mercy of the weirdness of strangers. By the time we got to the motel room, Scott and Kristen were each one drink deep, and they were watching To Catch a Predator, the Dateline show about snaring pedophiles in a stinghouse. We chatted idly. They told us there wasn't a lot of diversity where they were from, and Montana was a free-range state, meaning if someone's cow wandered into the road and you hit it with your car, you had to pay them for the cow. They kept drinking, like a lot, more and faster than normal. Scott killed a six-pack, and Kristen knocked back three or four stiff gin and tonics. About two hours into the drinking and dateline, a weird thing happened. Scott and Kristen, who seemed like kind and good and normal people, and who spoke glowingly of their own child staying with Scott's parents, started cheering for the pedophiles. It started gradually, with a comment about how smug Chris Hansen, the show's host, seemed as he busted the would-be pederasts. Then the rhetoric became more intense. Sean egged them on, talking about how it's not constitutional for police to entrap people like that. It was the kind of thought that maybe you have in private, but you never acknowledge out loud. After all, the perverts were the real bad guys here, right? So there we were, in a hotel room with drunken strangers who may or may not have been plotting our demise. Apparently, Stockholm Syndrome sets in quicker than you'd think. We joined right in with them. We began heckling the television as a team. Things like, Run! Go to therapy! It's not too late! And, alternately, Punch that smug dighead in the face! After three hours of watching every parent's nightmare scenario on television, we returned to our wildly inadvisable reality. We went to sleep on the floor, and by the time we woke up, Scott and Kristen were gone. I thought back on the night before and how surreal it was, how the alcohol and the cabin fever let us upend our sense of right and wrong to sneer at the heroes and cheer for the villains. That night, in Montana, two people who had probably never met a Jew before lived out the meaning of porn better than anyone I'd ever met. They got so drunk they couldn't tell a Haman from a Mordechai, or a Hansen from a pedophile. After Sean and I had driven a safe distance, I called my parents and told them that after a slight, unexpected delay, everything was back on track. Josh Gondelman is a writer and stand-up comic. Those of you on Twitter may know him as the co-author of the wildly popular Modern Seinfeld account. Now we turn to another major Purim theme, hiding one's identity. While living in the palace, Esther, whose real name is actually Hadassah, must conceal her Jewishness. Even her pseudonym means hidden. It's only out of sheer desperation when she's trying to derail Haman's plot that she finally reveals herself to her husband, the king. Emily Heller, our next storyteller, offers this twist on the theme of hidden identity. The summer after my junior year in college, I had just gotten dumped by my boyfriend, and I also had nowhere to live for the summer. I was already depressed about the breakup, and I didn't want to make it worse by living with my parents, who, in addition to being my parents, were also in the middle of selling the house that I was born in. The whole house was being staged by the realtors, so all our stuff was gone and replaced by, like, weird decorative jars of pasta and stuff. I wasn't allowed to touch anything, much less stay there. It was like one of those kid games where, like, the floor is lava, only instead of the floor, it was everything. So I decided to stay in my college town, and my best friend and I started looking for a sublet together, just for the summer. 
We didn't have a lot of money, so our options were really limited, and we were having a hard time finding a place. But finally, we found a place on Craigslist in our favorite neighborhood, a one-bedroom. And when I wrote to them, it turned out that the apartment belonged to two of my TAs who were leaving for the summer, these grad students who had been grading my papers and leading my sections all year. And I was a good student at a school full of stoners, so TAs loved me because I talked in class and turned in my homework and was lucid and wore shoes. So I stood out. They offered it to us right away. The only thing that they asked was that we come by for dinner so that they could show us around, tell us which plants to feed, get to know us a little bit, since we were going to be living in their house, basically, with all their stuff. So Allison, my friend, and I go over there. The place is so cute. They made us a little barbecue. There was a cute little backyard. And they were a couple in their 30s, both European. We got along really well. And even though we were all adults, in my head, I was still like, I'm in my teacher's house. This is their kitchen. This is their living room. This is their bedroom where they do it with each other. They showed us around the house, and they made us dinner, and they gave us wine. And they were talking about how glad they were that we came along because they were about to rent to these two straight guys, and they were so glad they didn't have to, which makes sense because men are disgusting. They got us drunk, and they gave us a tour of the neighborhood. And as we walked around, uh, she was telling us about the neighbors, you know, like this married couple lives here. There's another married couple that lives over there. It was all married couples. And she said something like, you guys are really going to be breaking up the heteronormativity of the neighborhood, which I thought meant because we were two weirdo college girls and not some married couple. I was really happy she said that because there was nothing I loved more than freaking out squares. By the end of the night, we'd eaten, we'd chatted, we'd gotten to know each other, and they're talking about the size of the apartment. And I say something about how I'd be living in the living room and Allison would be living in the bedroom because she had a boyfriend. And the whole conversation just comes to a screeching halt. And I have no idea why. They're just staring at us. And I look over at Allison, and she looks mad at me, and I don't know why. And then all of a sudden, Sandra just starts cracking up, just laughing hysterically. And I go, what's so funny? And she says, I thought you guys were a couple. The whole time, they thought we were a lesbian couple, and I had no idea even though they said that stuff about us breaking up the heteronormativity of the neighborhood and how they didn't want straight guys living there. It was why they were renting to us. The crazy thing is, Allison knew. She realized it right away. She knew they thought we were gay and didn't correct them. And didn't say anything to me either. I guess she assumed that I had figured it out too, and she wanted to keep the apartment. And the whole time, Allison was being really touchy with me, walking arm in arm with me, giggling at my jokes. She was flirting with me. And I was just totally oblivious. I had been pretending to be a lesbian, and I didn't even know it. We left their house just laughing about it. And Allison goes, well, look at what we're wearing. Of course they thought we were lesbians. And I looked down, and it was just head-to-toe thrift store clothes, little skater hats and sneakers and, like, crazy skirts. I don't even remember. I'm pretty sure I had grown my armpit hair out at the time, too, so that didn't help. But they let us move in because there's no turning back at that point. You can't exactly be like, hey, if you're not lesbians, you can't live here. And I felt kind of bad about it because I know so many gay people who faced so much discrimination 
whereas I was gay for half of a dinner party and I got an apartment out of it. And I'm happy that I did because Allison and I were not best friends when we moved in, but we were when we moved out. And being best friends is a way bigger deal than being a couple. I will say this, though. By the end of the summer, Allison had broken up with her boyfriend and was dating a woman. Not me, but a woman. So she left them a note when we moved out that just said, hey, you guys were half right. Emily Heller is a writer and comedian from San Francisco. She's got her own highly entertaining podcast called Baby Geniuses. You can find it on iTunes. Continuing on, we return to Esther. The reason she had to conceal her identity, of course, was that she was surrounded by a pretty hostile majority. Rob Kuttner can empathize with her plight, albeit on a slightly less dramatic level. I saw a lot of strange things during my 13 years as a Jew going to a Southern conservative Presbyterian private school. But probably the most memorable was the day, sophomore year, that I had a vision of Jesus on skis. Well, not literally. What happened was I was walking down the hall past what I'll call, for lack of a better word, the Christian Youth Lounge. It was the office of a sort of pastor-type guy who everyone just called Woody. He was kind of like a guidance counselor, but more concerned with getting you into heaven than Harvard. Now, I was friends with a lot of the kids who frequented the Christian Youth Lounge, but I was just never comfortable enough to actually go inside. Maybe... Being a Jew is a little bit like being a vampire. I guess I had to be invited to go over the threshold. But on this day, I was almost lured inside by two magical words. Ski trip. I heard friends buzzing about how the Christian campus youth group was going to go on a ski trip, and today was the day to sign up. This was very tempting for me. I know some Jews do ski, but my family was always more the typical kind of Jew that would not get on skis except maybe to flee over the Alps from the Nazis. I'd always wanted to try skiing, and finally I was going to have a chance to do so and with friends. So I took a deep breath, gathered my courage, stepped over the vampire border, and picked up the clipboard with the sign-up sheet. It had a packing list on it, and the first item on the packing list was a Bible. Suddenly, I had a vision of what the ski trip might actually entail. Long ski lift rides and long hot tub soaks, trapped in the kinds of increasingly uncomfortable conversations I was getting into with some of my, let's say, freshly evangelical friends. Less, how about those moguls, and more, have you accepted Christ into your heart? And it was just then that it suddenly occurred to me, what was my answer? You know, I mean, besides no. I realized how little I knew of my own traditions. Now, sure, of course, I had survived Hebrew school and gotten a bar mitzvah, and I still held the land speed record for resetting a done alone. But beyond that, what did I really know? Theologically speaking, I was still kind of on the bunny slopes. So I didn't go on the ski trip. But I did start learning about my heritage and caring and driving my family crazy with my demands for a kosher kitchen and to go to high school in Israel and One day after that, a yeshiva in Jerusalem. So, to any philanthropists listening out there who are looking for the next big idea to bring Jewish youth back to Judaism, my advice, send more of them to Presbyterian schools and uh, 
While you're at it, don't forget to kick in for Lyft tickets. Rob Kuttner is a writer for the late-night show Conan. He's also the author of Apocalypse How and The Future According to Me, which is a collection of 35 possible scenarios about the future on Earth. And now, on to our last theme, vegetarianism. Okay, it's not the first word you think of when you think of Purim, but it actually plays a role in the Megillah. When Esther moved into the palace, it's not like she could go around telling people she was kosher. Instead, she just ate fruits, beans, and grains, making her perhaps the only vegan in 4th century Persia. Our final storyteller, Judy Battalion, tells us about her own journey, from kosher to vegetarian and beyond. I was a short, nervous, brunette college freshman. Peter was a senior and literary critic who found me interesting. He found skinny blonde girls attractive. He was so tall, and I dreamed of him folding himself over me like origami. Each week we had a long meal during which he interrogated me as if I was a literary text. How often do you call your family? What time do you go to sleep? What's the best phone number you ever dialed? Smitten by this man who cared so much, I composed extensive theories to explain myself to him, freaking out. What was the best number? Double fours? Flush one, two, three? Who was I? How could I make Peter love me? One day in the dining hall, he stared at my plate of kidney beans and diet cranberry vinaigrette. Seriously, he asked, why are you a vegetarian? That threw me into silence. I grew up an outsider. While my peers donned Oshkosh couture, I was dressed in factory seconds from a Lubavitch importer. Plus, mine was the only family that was kosher. At classmates McDonald's birthdays, everyone was showered with Happy Meals, while I was exiled to a separate table and given a fish burger. By 13, I knew the only way to survive being the kosher kid was to become vegetarian. It was the early 90s. There was Ani DeFranco. Not eating meat made me cool. I proudly binged on bread and exchanged my Howard the Duck t-shirts for purple streaks in my hair. I carried this identity to college, where I got plastic frame glasses and studied theory to analyze my identity politics. I bonded over Satan like smokers unite over cigarettes. But I also still carried shame and found it hard to get close to men. I hung out with guys who didn't want intimacy, hence Peter. I'm a vegetarian because of subjectivity, I finally answered. He raised his eyebrow. Because of animals, it went higher. Because I have been for six years was all I could mutter. I did not tell him the kosher truth. Of course, there were no parents, no food police there. He was right. Why was I a vegetarian? That evening, hurrying back to campus, I passed Cafe 1369, where grad students bent over tomes of Kristeva and Lacan. Suddenly, I felt empty, starving. In the cafe's window, I saw a lone, forbidden-looking sandwich. I opened the door. What's that? I asked the waitress, my heart racing. Chicken deluxe, she said. I'll take it. Blood pounded in my ears as I sat down. What would I do when my transgression arrived? But the second it was served, my fingers grabbed the moist bread and stuffed the whole thing into my mouth. The chicken was velvety soft, but firm at its core. I finished to the final sesame seed, my stomach fuller than it had felt in years. I ran my tongue along the salty rims of my lips. I wanted more. Hands shaking, I picked up the menu, which suddenly read like a new, undiscovered text. In the past, my gaze had gone straight to the veg tofu section, 
But now my eye swam through dozens of paninis, BLTs, pastrami, veal. I could choose. My vegetarian mask, like my parents' kosher one, had given me an identity by limiting me. I had to decide things for myself. My bloodstream saturated. I bounced back to my dorm, bloated, floating. I ate meat, I repeated to Peter in my head. Look at me. For the next month, I had wild dreams about biting through steaks, sinking my teeth into hot hamburgers. I consumed meat three times a day. It was a protein rush, a power rush. Through my 20s, chicken led to hot dogs, led to shrimp and calamari. By 30, my diet was a tray fest, as was my romantic life. Forget Peter. I dated men from England, Germany, Wisconsin. I became a nomadic traveler and art curator with continual new plastic glasses. I tasted everything. Until. My first date with John, a Jewish lawyer, was more of a fight. He called me old, I called him cheap, and he ran for the train. But it was refreshing how he brought out my brashness, my honesty. John ate everything except raw tomatoes. We bonded over food, often indulging in two meals per date. A month after meeting, we went for burgers. I took a bite, then put my patty down. I didn't feel hungry. I was sated by our rapport. I felt like myself. As our relationship progressed, I ate less and less meat. We married. I got pregnant. I didn't have food cravings. I had repulsions, namely chicken. It felt fleshy, tender. It smelled like a child. I swore it off, becoming vegetarian again. My choice. When my daughter Zelda began eating solid food, I saw her nanny offer poultry meatballs. Get that out of her mouth, I yelled, and out of my kitchen. It dawned on me that my desires had gone even further back than vegetarianism. I wanted to keep a kosher home. Why, John asked, not so into it. But this time, I did know. To give Zelda a core, an identity, something to fight against. And so the food chain goes on. Judy Battalion, who, as you might have noticed, is a Montreal native, is a writer and performer based in New York. A huge thanks to her and the rest of today's storytellers, Josh Gondelman, Emily Heller, and Rob Kuttner, for sharing their stories. You can find more about all four of them, and also about Purim, on our website, tabletmag.com. Wait, 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 one more thing before we go. The music featured in today's podcast comes to us from the band The Isle of Klesbos. Okay, sorry. Back to you, Rebecca. Vox Tablet is produced by Julie Subrin. I'm Rebecca Sofer. From all of us at Tablet, we wish you a very happy Purim, Purim Sameach, and the whole Megillah. <laughs>